This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing our work, Session 3, Race and Wealth. In the third session of the Doing Our Work series, Professors Larry Morris and Bob Williams discuss the history of race and wealth in America, the growing income inequality, and how wealth is systemically designed to benefit a certain class of people. Retired economics faculty from A&T, and also a member of the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance, and enjoy working with Bob, also an economist. Hello, I'm Bob Williams, and I teach at Guilford College. And in fact, um, I will need to leave a few minutes early because I got to go work tonight um, and teach a class. So I'll leave you in very capable hands at the last part of the Q&A. So, but I just wanted to let you know that if I walk out stage left, it's not because of something someone said. So, so to start us off, I want to make a link back to Bay Love's presentation of the groundwater in which he talked about various kinds of disparities. They were on health and education, judicial system, and there were a couple things about economics. There were poverty rates and unemployment rates. Well, Bob and I are going to talk about wealth tonight and the disparities that are a consequence of national policies, federal policies, that have systematically, time after time, advantaged whites in the accumulation of wealth. Let me footnote that by saying that as you take this material, it is not intended to make white folks feel guilty. It is intended to understand our national policies that have brought us to where we are. You weren't there, I was, even I wasn't there when these things happened. Um, I mean, I'm drawn Social Security, but it was started in 35. I wasn't born yet. Um, so it's to take our understanding of wealth, which is really pretty central, and understand how that can help us in our thinking about our fundamental engagement, which is community and police. And that's the direction we're going in. So to put into context the issue of wealth, we have a graph of one indication of white advantage. And to explain the graph, what it means in terms of income is that the bar on the left of that pair says that whites earn roughly 1.6 or 7 times what the typical white black household earns. Higher levels of education higher levels of income and home ownership. But to put that into a different context, what happens to those disparities when we talk about wealth? When we talk about income, we're saying at 1.6 advantage for whites that when the typical 
black household earns $100, the typical white household is earning $160. But for wealth, we're talking about a ratio that's around 12. So that says for every $100 of wealth that a typical black household has, the typical white household has 1,212 times. Bob will now take us through a meaning of wealth and of income. So, probably for most of us, wealth and income are sort of interchangeable, and obviously they're related. But to just give you a simple um, definition, wealth is things that we get by with, I mean, income is things that we get by with, and wealth is getting ahead. So for most of us, income is salary and wages. Um, and that's those we, we sort of require monthly, uh, monthly um, paychecks so that we are able to pay for the regular bills like buying food, getting medical care, getting heat for the home, um, that sort of thing. So regular expenses. Wealth, on the other hand, are things that tend to hold value. Um, things like money, things like homes, uh, Having a college education is another form of wealth that, that economists call human capital. And what wealth does is it allows us to also generate income. But wealth allows us to get ahead. So that, for example, if we have some, some measure of wealth, that allows us to perhaps take some time off, maybe get some additional training that would allow us to then get a better job. Maybe it allows us to move our family to another city where there are greater opportunities. Maybe it allows us to um, put our sons and daughters through college, which would then obviously allow them to have a wider set of careers that, they would, that would be available to them. So wealth allows people to expand their opportunities. And if power is about having opportunities that you can take advantage of, then wealth really is a measure of power and allows us to, to really be able to do things um, that, uh, that, that people without wealth can't. So to try to understand the distribution of wealth, um, I want to share a couple different ways of looking at it. And what we have up here is um, 10 people representing 10 equal parts of the population in equal sizes. <coughs> Except the folks on the left are the wealthiest uh, members of our community. And as we move across the right, we have the, the least wealthy members in the community. So we're looking at a tenth of the population, but by wealth. The chairs themselves represent wealth. And again, we've divided the whole, all the wealth in this country into ten equal parts. And so what we're going to look at is how do we distribute this wealth um, um, across society. And as you can see there, the wealthiest 10% have seven chairs. Actually more than seven, seven and a half chairs. The next wealthiest 10% have one chair, 10%. The next 20% share a chair. The next 40% all share a chair, not very comfortably. And then the last 20% have no chair because their wealth is negative. Their debts are greater than their assets. 
So fully 20% of, of the members in our community have negative or zero wealth. And that's how we distribute that. Now, I noticed when you all walked in here tonight, some of you who might have more wealth didn't try to get seven pews. Okay? And in fact, we all decided that it made sense that we all would have, you know, a seat. Okay? Well, that's not how we've done our society. We've done our society like this. Now, I think the decisions you all made make a lot more sense than what we have here. Agreement, huh? <laughs> so, I want to then look at the distribution of wealth by race. And again, um, according to the, uh, the data that I have, the survey that I work with, 70% of the survey respondents are white households, and 30% are uh, households of color. So how is wealth distributed when we look at it by race? White people have 90% of the wealth. Okay? And right now, white people are looking pretty comfortable. Okay? And people of color are sharing one chair. Okay? So both of these visions, both of these ways of illustrations of wealth are really important to hold and to hold simultaneously. Because I think when most people are talking about wealth inequality in this country and, you know, what are the problems, in most cases what they're talking about is the first picture I just showed you. Right? They're talking about the 1%. And that's a real problem. But you rarely hear people talking about this part of the wealth problem. And another thing that's really important in terms of how to use this information day to day is this. Many of us work in organizations where we work with um, other persons of color, white people, we're all mixed up to, working together, and oftentimes in, in professional collegial relationships. And in many cases, we might earn relatively equal salaries. But what this is saying is what? We do not, this is not a level playing field. We do not have the same level of wealth. So while our colleagues, our colleagues of color, my colleagues of color might earn relatively similar salaries that I do, they are much less likely to own a home. They're much less likely to be out of debt in terms of their student debt. And their wealth is much more likely to be much smaller. And in fact, we can look at what is the typical wealth by race. And this again just sort of reiterates what Larry had mentioned a moment ago. The typical white household has over $120,000 in wealth. That would be equity in the home, that would be bank accounts, money in the bank accounts, it might be a retirement account if people are lucky to have that. It might be, you know, cars and things like that. On the other hand, the typical wealth for black and Latino families is $100,000 less, over $100,000, okay? And one of the things in terms of trying to understand, and one of the things that, that's important, I mentioned before that one of the reasons we value wealth is because it's durability. 
Wealth is things that hold value. And it holds value not just over a lifetime, it holds value from generation to generation. So much more than income, much more than education attainment, if we want to understand this, we need to go back in history. Because this here is an echo of our past. And not only is it an echo of our past, but because of the power that wealth provides, it is a predictor of our future. So that's the reason why we're going to focus a lot on wealth tonight. So what happens when we go to the past? Well, I want to talk about affirmative action for whites, and I want to go back to a founding document, the Constitution. Okay? And now I know that most of you are familiar with the Fifth Amendment. No person should be deprived of life, liberty, and property. Okay? And that's something that, that's, that's certainly very, very important. But also part of the Constitution is another part of the, uh, another clause that most of us are not familiar with. And even if you try to read it, it's really hard to understand what it's about. But this is the Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution. This is basically saying that if uh, someone says that they are a slaveholder of some individual, I'm supposed to help them recapture them. Okay? So when we're talking about, you know, uh, no, not being deprived of life, liberty, and property, we're clearly talking about two very different classes of people. And this is in the Constitution. Now, what's even worse is this. Not only is this privileging white people in terms of being able to become, to be slaveholders, it's also criminalizing black behavior. Normal black behavior of walking down, traveling to try to get better employment, to seek better opportunities, that was criminalized. You were thought to be an escaped, enslaved person. Okay? And we know later that there are laws that says if you try to teach enslaved people to read, if you try to educate them, that's illegal. If they try to assemble to, to pray as a group, that's illegal. So the, the process by which we have privileged whites is also the same process by which we have criminalized black behavior for doing just normal human behavior. And it's important because as we tie it back to some of the issues that we are dealing with in, in, in the contemporary society, the connections are really clear. For example, the slave patrols that arose during the antebellum South are very, very similar to the relationship of the police in our communities of color. In terms of protection, protecting white property and making sure the status quo is maintained. But actually we have to go back further to really understand the problem. And I'm gonna show you some maps. This is the map of North America about 400 years ago. I bet not many of you have seen a map like this. How many of you, regardless of where you call home, know who lived on the land that's your home 
over 400 years ago. Why do we not know that? Now, land, historically, is the most important source of wealth. If you controlled it, you had access to, or even owned it, you were then able to use the fruits of the land. Okay? So we would think from this map, who would be the wealthiest people in this country? Native Americans. But of course, we know differently. That's how much land is left that they control. So our history, and this is a history we're all familiar with, was one of violence, genocide, war, to remove Native Americans from the land because white people coveted it. It's as simple as that. We have the Indian Removal Act of 1830. That was a day when you know, laws were sort of really clear about what their intent was, rather than this sort of, sort of nice language that we have now. And of course, who got that land? Well, we talk about this wonderful piece of legislation, the Homestead Act of 1862. To be able to get land, you had to either be a citizen or eligible for citizenship, which meant you had to be white. And in fact, the Homestead Act over 70 years gave away 240 million acres. Almost all of it went to white people. They think that um, 46 million Americans today are the beneficiaries of the Homestead Act. Since that mostly went to white people, among white folks, that's about a quarter of us. I know my own grandfather, um, the family history is he grew up on a farm in Illinois and moved west to California. Well, I can be pretty certain that that farm was part of the Homestead Act and that that allowed him to have some opportunities um, back then. Not done with maps, but this is how we got the whole southwest part of the United States. We went to war with Mexico. It was a quick war. They sued for peace. We took half of their country. Represents about a third of the continental United States. So overnight, Mexican citizens all of a sudden, all of a sudden found themselves in a new country. In a new country where English was the language, American laws was the, the, the way, the, the, the form of justice, and the people who were enforcing these laws were people who were just moving in. And over the next 20 or 30 years, we see the same thing with land claims are being disputed, um, and there are these commissions that are set up. They're very much uh, tilted towards um, get, taking land away from the um, Latino landowners and basically giving it to the Anglos who are moving in. And of course, we not, can't not go back and talk about slavery. Okay? And the slide is, you know, obviously the cotton economy and the plantation economy was, was not only enriched the plantation owners, which it did, but it also enriched the merchants, the shippers, the bankers, the insurers, all back up north. 
And they would then donate some of their wealth to elite private universities to then educate the next generation of largely white men and women. So, so again, we see how the, our history is um, set up so that wealth is being reserved for white people and, and taken away from people of color. And again, if you were a Latino and you said, this isn't fair, you were branded an outlaw. If you were an enslaved person and you said, this isn't just, this isn't, you would be branded as an outlaw. Again, we criminalized behavior where people tried to stand up for justice. That takes us to the 20th century, and I'll turn it back to Larry. The 1930s saw three very important pieces of social legislation. One that we're all familiar with, 1935, Social Security Act. Same year, Congress passes the National Labor Relations Act. This guarantees workers the right to unionize. And then we have the Fair Labor Standards Act that comes three years later, which established for the first time a federal minimum wage and guaranteed payment of time and a half for overtime work in certain situations. These three acts, which on the face of them look very benign, disproportionately helped white households gain wealth. One of the things that tied those three acts together is that all three of them have a clause that was put in by the Southern Democrats that said these laws do not apply to workers who are in agriculture or doing domestic work. You don't have to mention race, but you can figure out what the consequences are. 1930s, where were most blacks living? Answer in the South. What were most men doing? Black men. Farmers. What were most black women doing? Domestic. Most white women weren't working. Folks have estimated that as a consequence of this exclusion of agricultural and domestic workers, 67% of blacks were denied access to participation, participation in the Social Security program. They weren't guaranteed the right to unionize, and they were not guaranteed minimum wage or overtime. So what happens if your family has access to what those three things guaranteed? If you can form a union, then you're in a job that pays a union premium in the wage compared to comparable work, more income into the household. If you're in a job that was paying very little and now maybe you're pulled up to the new federal minimum wage, 
and you've been ripped off in the past in terms of working overtime with no significant compensation beyond your usual wage, you're now pulling in more income. Income allows the family, greater income allows the family to save at least a little bit more. But a significant piece in this is the Social Security Act. Particularly in the time of a depression, what are most households, to the extent that they can save, what are they going to be saving for? The answer is old age, retirement. Now with Social Security, households can rethink two important things. One, do we need to save as much? And two, of what we save, we can think differently about what we're going to do with that. We can plan a future. That's what capital gives you. So maybe a child, the family decides, a child can stay in school instead of having to drop out to get a job to help support the family. In, according to the 1940 census, 60% of adults at an eighth grade or lower level of public formal education. Would having your child be able to finish at least the eighth grade, maybe the ninth grade, maybe finish high school, would that have advantaged that child? The answer is significantly yes. Maybe the savings allows you that you don't need now for retirement. You can make a down payment on the home. And some magical things begin to happen when you own a home. You're no longer paying rent. You have an asset which you anticipate will appreciate in value with time. And you've got property that you can take to the bank so you can take out a loan. Maybe to start a business. Maybe to further the education of your children. So what, this, what these three things did for folks who were able to tap into these three acts was they were able to improve themselves marginally. But in doing that, they were able to launch their kids at a slightly higher level. And if a child has a higher occupation than the father had, can earn more, and what can that child do? The next generation, maybe they go further in schooling than my generation did. And I went further than my parents went. So it's these small increments that move from generation to generation. And that begins to build that 12 times ratio. So when we think about inheritance, I'm ask you to think if you've got your homework. Think about your own inheritance. 
inheritance for a lot of us, we have in mind getting a big pot of money. <laughs> well, what's the current reality? The current reality from statistics collected by the Federal Reserve System, which is our main source of information about wealth. Kind of frustrating. But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, these we're really good at collecting data on income. But you think in the capitalist system, you don't collect data on accounts. Even what the Fed does is once every three years. So the typical, the recent data from the Federal Reserve. 40% of whites, white adults, white households, have either received or expect to receive an inheritance. So, and how much is the inheritance? The average inheritance is $250,000. I'm not saying that's a small amount of money, but when we think about inheritance, you know, the mortgages and Gates and you know, cotton billions. What we inherited. Case, what I inherited from my parents was not what was doled out when the will was read. I got to go to college, and they paid for that. That was my main inheritance. And I suspect for the rest of you, it wasn't when the will was read. It was what you got from your parents in terms of how far you got in, the, in your schooling, networks that you were able to be plugged into. A lot of jobs are landed through networking, word of mouth. And it's these kinds of social capital and human capital that we gain, not this monetary capital. So maybe the next generation can do a little bit more for the next generation and a little bit more for the next generation. And it might be that what one generation can do is help the next generation with a down payment. And maybe what you need the down payment for, for the house, is you want to buy a house that's high priced because it's what in what's deemed a really good public school district that's gonna gain a significant advantage for the next generation. So it's these kind of small buildings, not getting hundreds of thousands or millions when relatives die. It's the step up, next generation a little bit higher, next generation a little higher, next generation a little higher. You keep that process going, and it's been primarily folks who look like me, whose families had access to that process in the ways in which black households did not have access. So I'm going to talk about that celebrated policy we're all familiar with. As Larry suggested, the three other bills that he just talked about for gave marginal improvement. This one really crazy. So what happened in the GI Bill? The other thing that's important about the GI Bill, unlike the bills that Larry just talked about, the GI Bill was race neutral. It was for all veterans. But the problem is, what happens 
when you implement a race-neutral policy in a racist society. Okay? So let's look at what happened. Education. About 7.8 million veterans came home and got either vocational or a college education. Over 2 million got a college education. But what did that mean for black Americans in the 1940s? Well, in the South, you could only go to HBCUs. So the, actually, the Department of Veteran Affairs gave folks a list of which colleges they could apply to. A&T, NC Central, they were overwhelmed. And they had to turn away over half their applicants. Now you might think, well, what was going on in the North? Well, the University of Pennsylvania in 1946 had 9,000 students. 46 of them were black. The Princeton newspaper did a poll of Princeton students in that year and asked them, how would you feel about having black veterans coming back from war coming to campus? Over 60% said they didn't want them. The remainder said we would, ex we would tolerate them if there was a quota and they didn't live on campus. That is the kind of reception. Vocational training. Many, many veterans got vocational training that allowed them to increase their income. And in fact, there was a congressional study that said those veterans who, who were able to get either a college education or vocational education were, had incomes of ten dollars to $15,000 more than those who did not. Now, ten dollars to $15,000 back in the 1940s was a significant amount of money. Well, again, in the South, um, where it was Jim Crow, the only way that um, uh, black veterans would get help is if there were black counselors, right? So in Alabama and Georgia, there were 12 across the whole state. And Mississippi? Mississippi, there were zero. So there was no opportunity for black veterans in Mississippi for vocational training. What about home ownership? That was the other real important piece. Um, and that's a case where, again, it was race neutral, but we get, we're now in a period where the, uh, we have redlining. And that map that we showed you up, and I'll show you again, this is Greensboro. This is the redlining map for Greensboro. And where a redlining map came from was not from the banks. It came from New Deal Democrats. It came from the federal government, where they began to guarantee loans, and of course, worried about whether those, those mortgage loans would be good, they decided they were going to go out and basically grade every neighborhood. And they graded neighborhoods not only on housing stock quality, home ownership, rental, but also on what was the demographics. What was the race of the residents in that neighborhood? And so you got a grade of A, B, C, and D. And if you can see up there, yellow 
and red are C and D. And they're at what side of downtown? The south and the east. So over the period of, of 1946 to 1962, there were of the $120 billion of mortgage loans done by VA, FHA, 98% went to white home buyers. So almost all of it. Now, what's amazing is that during the same period, black home ownership rates jumped. And they jumped even though they had to get loans where they had to make larger down payments, they had to pay higher interest rates, they had to pay private insurance. Nonetheless, during this time period, black home ownership increased from 1940 to 1960 significantly, despite all those obstacles. So you might think that these policies are all in the past and that we're not doing these things today. Well, guess what? Again, the lesson of the GI Bill is what happens when you implement race-neutral policies in a race, racist society. So I'm going to share with you the current wealth-building policies. You're going to be familiar with some of these. I bet you're going to be familiar with the home mortgage deduction, homeowners. And if you've ever sold your house, the home sales exclusion. Okay? So these are a dozen tax deductions that we use in the current tax code that raise wealth of those who are able to utilize them. Okay? So there are all these tax deductions if you're a homeowner. How many tax deductions if you were a renter? None. And one of the things that's real important to understand about tax deductions, I'm not going to go into a lot of tax law, but what it means is this. If I have a mortgage of, say, that I'm paying off at, say, $10,000, a round figure, if I'm in the 15% tax bracket, that's going to be worth $1,500 to me. If I'm in the 25% tax bracket, that same deduction is now worth $2,500. So the higher the tax bracket, the more generous these tax deductions are. And of course, there's no ceiling. Wealthy people tend to buy bigger homes, more expensive homes. They take out larger mortgages, and so they're going to get a larger tax deduction. Well, that happens with each one of these. So let's take a look at who gets these tax deductions. So I'm going back to an earlier slide where I'm looking at the bottom fifth of households, those with the least wealth. That's the red. The middle class, the middle 20%. That's the middle bar. And then the wealthiest 20%. I bet those in the back you can see what's going on. Is that true? Okay. Who's getting most of these tax deductions? And then what happens if we do this by race? We have ongoing public policy that is basically favoring, privileging the wealthy, who also tend to be largely white, 
Is there any question why the racial wealth gap is getting wider? We, these policies, that's exactly what they're doing. So, the American way. Highest standard of living for whom? We've created a system that enriches white people and basically puts a ceiling on the opportunities of people of color. So I'm going to let Larry bring it back home. So to put in slightly different context the discussion of the wealth and income as we know is rising to the top. So economic theory says and business practice says it makes sense to pay workers an amount, a wage comparable to their productivity. Well, what the graph is showing is that by the mid-70s, well, up to the mid-70s, hourly compensation was keeping, running parallel with worker productivity. After 73, worker productivity continued to rise. That's the, number, the, the line on the top. What happened to wages? Flattened out. If I'm producing more, but I'm making the same wage, who's getting that differential? The owners, the capitalists. So one thing that's drawing income and wealth up is workers are getting ripped off. And part of that story is One grounds of defense that workers have is unions. What's happened to union membership? It's falling off. What's happening to percent of income going to the top 10%? Those two lines are running in opposite directions. The capitalists are getting more at the expense of the workers. A problem that we have again coming from our history, for working toward worker solidarity, is in the early 1900s, it was a very clear strategy on the part of employers that if you wanted to break, in, break a strike, the scabs you brought in were black. Very intentional. Tear the work part, workforce apart. The American Federation of Labor they were organizing the skilled trades in the early 1900s, mid-1900s. They wanted to create monopolies around those trades, race monopolies around those trades. The American Federation of Labor working with the Southern Democrats from the National Labor Relations Act pulled out a clause that was in the initial draft of the bill which said that if a union had segregated locals, they weren't guaranteed the right to organize. But you could be a racist union, and as the bill was passed, you were given the right, you were guaranteed the right to organize. So we have black workers 
who don't have access to really being able to work as a united front with co-workers. And a consequence is the income, the process keeps going. And as this graph and the previous graph suggest, they're part of that acceleration, the exploitation of the workers in the form of lower wages. So to connect this to Greensboro, the map, it's a 1936 map, 2,000 census data, 59 census tracts in Greensboro, and I looked at along the bottom axis, percent white in the census tract, you can think of it sort of as neighborhood, and median housing value. And what do you see? In Greensboro, it's like we would predict any place else. The wider the neighborhood, the more the homes are worth. The wider the neighborhood, the greater the rate of home ownership. Nationally, the rate of home ownership now for whites is 71% of white households own their own home. 44% of blacks own their own home. And for most of us in the middle and below, if we own a home, that's our single largest asset. And what we've seen is there's a whole history that explains that kind of differential in not only home value, but in who owns homes. So I'm going to bring this to what's called us all together, and that is to think about police-community relationships. Last time, Claire talked about my favorite psychologist, um, <laughs> who seemed to have the same last name. Um, talked about implicit bias and how this might influence policing decisions, momentary decisions. We also in our society have a class bias. And police are no less prone to that than the rest of us. Who are we likely, who is the police likely to give a buy to? Someone in a nice car or someone in a beat up car? Okay. So more confrontations maybe happen between police and citizens just because of differentials in wealth that individuals aren't really responsible for. There's a whole history that's responsible for them. And as Bob said, we have a fundamental principle, organizing principle for police is the protection of property. So a white person walking in a black community, particularly a white male, will be treated differently by the police if a car goes by than a black male walking through Irving Park and the police car sees. So wealth means power. Power gets protected. It's protected actively. It's also protected by our not being taught our full histories. We have a history in this city, and we're not taught all that history. We have a city council that has yet to, yet to discuss the report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. 
spite of Von Johnson's attempts when the report came out to have the council support talk about it. So we've got problems in the community in terms of the same kind of wealth differentials that we see nationally, and we have an unwillingness to talk about race. And to get to the issues around policing and community, clearly race is at the bottom, and we've got to have those conversations. And we, as we think of how we want to go as members of the community, we want to be well-informed. We want to understand our history. We want to understand what's produced the differences that we see in our communities. Why doesn't my neighborhood look like East Greensboro? Well, I know why it doesn't. Okay. Why do I see fewer police cars than East Greensboro does? I think I understand that, too. So that's it. We're open for questions. Uh, what, what do you have in the way of a relationship between wealth and getting elected? Not to be uh, facetious, I would say the, the laughter in the room answers that question. <laughs> now, it's true, that, it's true that just spending alone on a campaign does not ensure that you're going to be elected. Is it getting worse? It's getting way worse. And we have Citizens United ruling by the Supreme Court that's made that take a quantum jump in terms of how bad. About the, uh, um, the the generational effect you saw, you know, incremental effect uh, for whites. So I'm wondering if in the black community we're starting to see, if that is happening also. You know, where, where black folks who, who get an education are making money can, can you know their children are doing better than their parents. If that's occurring, and and if you could comment also on that that the the, the uh, flatlining of the productivity versus wages if that's having an effect on, on the multi-generational effect. There's a very interesting and very fundamental difference in the way in which financial assets move in white households across families and in black households. In white households, it's primarily from one generation to the next to the next, and I'm talking about actual goodies, I mean financial stuff, or stuff that's worth things, capital. In the case of black households, it's much more likely that wealth will move horizontally or move back. I'm doing well. I've got an uncle who's not doing well. I'm going to support him. We don't see that very often in the white community. Or my brother's in financial trouble, I'll help him. So wealth moves around rather differently. In terms of education, studies show that white parents are just as excited and committed to having their kids do well in school as white parents are. 
But obviously there's an income and wealth differential that means the ability of the typical white household to support its child, keep it in school, maybe pay for community college, maybe pay for university college, maybe help with student loans, whatever. The, under re the less resource black household isn't in the same position, but it's gonna have the same desires. Yeah, and I would add to the second part of your question, which has to do with the stagnant wages, that that's clearly gonna have an impact. Because wages is how most of us and most of our ancestors um, were able to solely get ahead. And if wages are not enough to, to basically you know, have a living wage, then, then obviously people can't get ahead. Um, and so that's just one of many things that's causing the, the wealth divides to get larger and larger. People are um, sometimes likely to do something if they think they can, what they're gonna do is gonna make a difference. So you were talking about the race neutral policies are not, are helping to create the widening gap. So if people were to implement, even in Greensboro, decision makers were to implement policies that helped to um, make gains for black and Latino communities for wealth, how many generations would you project that it would take for wealth to be equalized? It's, um, it's daunting because wealth is just, it, it just doesn't change um, in terms of, um, so it, it would take at least that. I mean, w the work that we're talking about is long-term work. And um, race-neutral solution. We would need to start with some kind of policies that would, that would target um, educational opportunities, home ownership opportunities, down payment opportunities, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. so that, that, that would, those are the main barriers that, that families face in terms of being able to, to improve their own prospects and also their kids' prospects. Okay, so. but that is possible to do even in Greensboro being an example sure. for the rest of sure. the state and the we nation. We can lead the nation. And one of the, uh, an additional step that we can, as a city, can take and should be taking, and the county as well, is supporting the development of local businesses. <coughs> Creating local businesses. We have a problem, and we're not unique in this, that big corporations come into city council, want $1.5 million, give it to them, they stay, they create some jobs, then a little while later they're gonna come back and say, you know, we're gonna leave unless you can come up with another .8 million dollars. Well, if you support, so, so they begin to hold this ransom. If you support local businesses where their customers are here, you create jobs here, you have businesses' economic basis here, they may want to expand, but they're not going to threaten to leave. They're not going to abandon their customers. We need those kinds of policies. We should, I think, we should have loans and grant policies that help create local enterprises. An additional advantage to creating local is when a financial storm goes through the economy, the more local ownership of business and production you've got, the more insulated you are 
from these tidal waves that come from elsewhere in the economy. Hello. For, um, I guess the question that hasn't been asked yet is, with the information that's here, um, you, you prefaced the meeting with that this information is not to make white people feel guilty. So for, for the white people in the room that have been informed or have an understanding of this information, what is it that they can do that's not an act of charity towards people like me? Because when you're speaking about the disparity, I'm, I'm, I'm in that example. You know, the income, if I make $45,000 a year, my 45 isn't like her 45000 for example. I have a mother to support. I have, you know, I have, I have to reach back. My money goes back. So there's still a disparity there. But for those who are, you know, here and present, what is it that they can do? Because this, I mean, even though the intent is not to, you know, to feel guilty, you know, the fact that all of you are coming to an understanding that you are inherently privileged, what is, what can you do about the privilege that you have now that you are aware that you have the privilege, there's really nothing you can do about it because it's inherent and it's built into the system for you. What can they do to bridge the gap of disparity? Thank you. I, I would say the first thing is, um, in, uh, though we, this is not intended to make white people feel guilty, I think it's inevitable that many white people will feel guilty um, as a result of that. But the first thing is to get past that. Um, that uh, you know, we need to to recognize that that maybe you know maybe we didn't get where we are solely our own efforts. Maybe the maybe the privilege that we got along the way and all the sources of help were also part of it. That doesn't mean that we didn't work hard. So that's part of it. I think is to do some internal work in terms of how do we wrestle with these issues. But more importantly, is then to begin looking at the systemic work in terms of what are some public policies that we could implement that could retarget. And part of that would be taking these tax deductions and recognizing that we can help people get into home ownership. We can help people save for retirement. We can help people build a nest egg. But we need to figure out solutions that work not for the wealthy, which is what these deductions do, but to develop policies that work for people who are, you know, having much more t difficult time just struggling and getting by. And those ideas and those policies are out there. I would add in a phrase that I've heard batted around lately that I like is lower the guilt and increase the responsibility. I think another way of taking responsibility is to understand how the system has helped people who look like me and not buy into, have now, I hope, a different understanding from what we're all told about we're on our own, it's individual, and it's market outcome. Well, it's interesting, always fascinating to me, that the people who have the strongest faith in market outcomes are the ones who make what I would call obscene incomes. It's a way of justifying, the market justifies my making five million, right? So does that mean someone who is working for minimum wage 
is just that somehow or other that's just that that person's making that amount? I mean, you've got to recalibrate, rethink. I mean, just take some of the language that we have. Listen to two phrases, and I'm going to make up the number. Bill Gates is worth $40 billion. Bill Gates has assets worth $40 billion. What's the difference? How do we usually say it? Bill Gates is worth 40000 Bill Gates is worth no more than anyone else in this room or anyone else on the planet. But what's our language do? We get pulled into attributing value and positive attributes to folks who have high wealth. Well, as we've sort of suggested, they kind of got there either by privilege or they stole them. Hi, I'm Jim Cooper. I live in Kirkwood. And the last questionnaire kind of uh, encouraged me to uh, share uh, something that I'd like to, to bring here uh, addressing this uh, business of, uh, of financial inequity across the community. Someone at our first meeting, I guess it was uh, in the middle of the summer, I think it was the mayor, says, well, you know, one thing we could do is shop all around the town, not just where I live, but also look at the east part of town and uh, things like that. So um, I realized I, I needed some dental procedures. So um, I uh, went online and consistent with my age, I also looked in the Yelp pages, which <laughs> most of you, so many of you don't know what that is. But anyway, uh, I found a uh, black, maybe actually multi-racial, multi-ethnic uh, practice, and um, had my procedures uh, done. Uh, the, uh, the practice was, was not as plush as the last office I visited here in the, the battleground area, but the place was immaculately clean. The uh, staff was uh, more than competent and uh, approachable and uh, caring, uh, and everyone doing their job quite well. My procedures uh, worked out uh, just fine, perfect as I uh, expected. And um, then I encouraged my daughter to do, do likewise. So uh, what I'm uh, encouraging you to do is to look for positive experiences like, like I have uh, uh, found and spread your consumer dollars uh, around town. Uh, this is a way that you personally can be race neutral is how you spend your dollars uh, around town. So uh, I'm going to be doing more of that because I've had a very positive experience. And uh, by the way, uh, there was a good value. Uh, one procedure was 36% of what I was quoted here in mm -hmm. the Northwest. Mm -hmm. And the other one was about two thirds. So yes, I got quality, I got great service, I made some new friends. The staff was not only multi-racial, uh, but they were multi-ethnic. I heard both uh, English, Hispanic, and, uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, 
Mandarin. So, uh, you know, you can have a great experience by going around town. Great. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm Tom Burwell, and just on that phrase, uh, decrease guilt and increase responsibility, yeah, I mean, I think, like, we, we all heard, like, these facts, and, like, um, I think part of the thing, though, it's, like, what really changes people's behavior isn't usually, you know, facts and arguments and rational arguments. It's like uh, people's behavior gets changed by, um, by really seeing other people change their behavior. And it, it's really creating the creation of new customs and traditions. And so um, I, I just, just keep that in mind, I, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's like. Uh, I mean, it just talk, it's not enough to just have these rational ideas. That's not really going to change things. It's really um, create the creation of new um, customs and traditions, I guess. And so, um, yeah, that, that was just uh, what I wanted to add. Thanks. Uh, I just... Uh, I live in this neighborhood. My name is Michael Roberto. I live, well, I live in Sunset Hills, and, and uh, I, I thank you for the presentation. I know we're not supposed to feel guilty, but when I pick up the newspaper lately and I find that the city assures us that they're not going to raise taxes to build a performing arts center, but they're going to make up the difference with added VIP parking. I mean, now, here we are trying to get at the bottom of things, trying to figure out how we can deal with the guilt and how to level the playing field. And we don't want to talk about raising taxes which is what most of us need to consider seriously. Because I don't mind paying $100 a year more in taxes if somebody else who has a lot more money than I do will pay his or her fair share. So maybe we could take some of this revenue and create an infrastructure bank. And maybe we could start to do some of these things instead of listening to people justify how they're going to build this performing arts center by adding more privileges to the privileged. I don't get it, people. I mean, I really don't. We're neighbors, right? I mean, we, we have a stake in this. So I, I, I'm just, you know, I'm just asking, I guess I'm talking out loud here. How do we, how do we do something concretely substantial as a community. And I think the only way we can do, do it is to basically say, we're going to raise taxes because we would rather spend $100 or $200 a year more in taxes and 
put some revenue aside so folks in East Greensboro can begin to build capital formation in their own neighborhoods rather than having this silly, immoral discussion about a performing arts center and VIP parking spaces. Um, Jordan Green, maybe uh, Michael may have answered part of the question, but um, Larry, I wanted to ask you more about um, your, what you were saying about local businesses. Um, and I was just thinking about the advantages that white people have um, starting businesses due to historical circumstances. Um, in my own case, having family members who could pony up capital to help us invest. And so I wondered if you could talk about um, a local business promotion policy that would specifically address um, the racial wealth gap? One place to start is it's not enough to help businesses get up and running. It helps if the city, through its procurement programs, helps support on a sustained basis. Let me tell you a story about the school board. At one point, when the um, staff presented the budget with all the procurement, all the primarily construction work and other services that the school system was buying, a member of the board asked, well, by each one, can you tell us something about the business, like, for example, which of them are minority businesses. So the staff came back next time, and there were columns blank, then minority, blank, blank, minority. And people, board members looked at that and said, my goodness, we're doing more to support minority business than I thought we were doing. And then the same board member said, for all the ones that are majority owned, ask the staff, put in white. So now what's the list look like? White, 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 white. Minority, white, white, white. The table now tells a different story. My God, we're getting almost everything from white-owned businesses. And what's one reason we're getting some of that stuff done by, by, by majority or white-owned businesses? For some construction work, you need bonding. For bonding, you need some history. Well, if you haven't been in, his, been in business for three generations, it's kind of hard to have that. So it's hard for minority-owned businesses to get up, get the licensing, get the bonding, have the skills to take on we don't even have, we have a company, we have minority-owned companies who will do heating and air conditioning, but we don't have any that are big enough to do any of the city school projects. So if we're gonna figure this out and we're gonna begin to create some equality, we've gotta understand why are so many businesses, minority businesses small? Well, it's because they're not getting enough patronage. Got to go to the dentist. It's not just enough for us individually, though we need to be doing that. We need to bring in city government, county government, 
They've got to do that on a systematic basis, in addition to encouraging, training, making loans to, making grants to new minority-owned businesses. Hi, I'm back. <laughs> the reason why I'm back is because the gentleman brought up about you know, what to do to help East Greensboro. And I live in Neiltown Farms. And the issue on the east side of Greensboro is that it's not that we need necessarily, we do need you know, help from the city, but it's not in the, we're also working on ways to be self-sufficient. We have the Renaissance Co-op, but the biggest issue that we have, and hopefully you all, you know, we can help influence public opinion tonight, is that uh, I'm a homeowner in Neiltown Farms, those you know with the White Street landfill, the big you know, lawsuit and all of that, and I was a part of that. Well, what the city council has done now is they have partnered with Petra, and Petra is building a natural gas station in the White Street landfill to you know, pull the, nat you know, the gas out from the landfill and sell that for profit. They're also building a solar panel farm that's gonna be ranging 14 to 20 acres. Now, this is with not one dime from city council money. Petra is handling all of the costs themselves. Plus, we're actually charging cone mills now for the methane from, uh, you know, from the gas, uh, which, as, as you all know who know the history, you know, the city made the deal with Cone Mills to keep jobs, and so they supplied them with free methane. Well, Cone Mills dropped their workforce over 60% um, and still have been getting free methane. So now the city's finally decided to charge them. They haven't sought any type of retributions or refunds, but this is a going forward. The issue is, is that the city council has not designated any funds from that project to go towards East Greensboro. It is being allocated into general fund, yet that station is going to be making anywhere between seventy dollars to $80,000 a year in my backyard, and I am not profiting from it directly. It has not been designated. I have asked Councilman Fox. He says, no, none of the monies will be used specifically for East Greensboro. It will go into general fund. Now, after seven years, when Petra has recouped their initial investment, it becomes available and open for the city of Greensboro to purchase it. My thing is with my homeowners association, I've introduced it to them. Why is it that East Greensboro, the city cannot purchase that in co-ownership with city of Greensboro because the issue is ownership. Because even once the methane gas dries up, there's, you still have the solar power that they're also making a profit because they're selling it to Duke Energy. Empower our community. We don't need a hand out, we need a hand up. And since we have a money-making thing that has cost the city nothing to produce, they're reaping 100% profits, it's like a good wheel situation. They're donating this, you're getting 100% of the profits for that, and it's going back into general fund with a very liberal city council. And the monies uh, with the city council are being spent to bring in new jobs, yet city council has only, think twice, counting cone meals, ever spent money to keep jobs here. A lot of the focus is bringing in new jobs, like with Curvo. Well, Curvo hires a black individual five to one. So it doesn't really do an improvement, and they've done a lot of announcements about it. It doesn't help my community. Because based on the profile of the company that they've just given money to and matched to to build, it doesn't impact my community. It impacts 
white Greensboro, not black Greensboro. So we have tools, things in our area. We're struggling to do matchups and land developers are getting grants from the city, but we're having to match for our co-op because I live in a food desert. It's these type of things that the city council, even though you know they're black, some of them don't act black in terms of when you look back on our community. And when you look like how the biggest opponents against investing in our community, in our civil rights center, are the black people on city council. Black doesn't always mean black. Thank you. That's really hard to follow. <laughs> it was easy to understand, but hard to come after. Um, I just wanted to thank you guys for being here and for my friends for introducing me to this. And I think it's really important to get um, education out there. And I. I think part of what you all were saying tonight, and I guess my question or proposal is, I feel like the things that you're teaching aren't taught universally, and that's where a lot of the issues stem from, because people get stuck in their bubble of what they've learned, or what they've been taught, or what they've seen, and do you think it's possible that a more accurate portrayal of where the United States has come from could be taught to our children of any race and level. And then by that token, if it is, I think then it's doing the same as empowering the generations below us to make that disparity lessen. Um, and then thank you to Greensboro for having this because I moved here from Baltimore City and I went from being the minority to now the opposite, and it's very eye-opening to see people working together, or trying. One, one comment I would, I would have, or what I would say to that is, we, this collective, we're gonna start engaging in some projects. We wanna do some concrete things, and we understand that while the, what brought us into the room, into the conversation, was the discussion of police and community relationships. But we're coming to understand that the community-police relationship is a very complicated one embedded in a system of systems. Taxes, city spending, go on down the list. The history of what's brought us to this point in terms of ownership. So one of the things we can do is we can, from a group like this, there can be a committee that has an interest in trying to impact the educational system in Guilford County. There's no reason why we can't do that, or at least try. Folks in Chapel Hill have undertaken a project to try to improve their educational system. We can do that. And I think it's really important to do it because sometimes our thinking is, well, frequently maybe, our thinking is guided by the stories that we've heard and the stories we tell ourselves. So if we believe we're self-made and we believe that we're, what we get is what the market produces, that means we've bought into a story in which power and history don't exist. And we're not going to change unless we understand the history and understand 
that to change, we've got to change power relationships. And in a democracy, we can take, grab that power and work to make those changes in power. Yeah, just getting back to what you said before about um, minority-owned businesses, is that if you're, you know, if you've had companies, you've had, you've owned businesses, you kind of know all the fine print. And if you're a newer minority, you're, you know, you're not inheriting this company from your dad. You, you started from the grassroots. You don't realize that if, if we're married, how you doing? And he says, let's put it in your name. The company's in your name. All of a sudden, it's this minority-owned business, and I can pick and choose. And, and it's like, yeah, we really are this minority business. Where are we going to go for the holidays? And then you have a, a real you know, struggling family that has, they all pulled together, they've taken out loans, they've done everything, they've, they've done all their homework, and they get these businesses, and they say, and we're, we're obviously a minority. You're not, because until you actually go, you know, you get your license, you get all these things, you get all this done, but the fine print in the city of Greensboro and other places is you have to register with a minority organization, that you are this real minority organization. It doesn't matter that you listed everything on the paper. So when it comes to the school department, when it comes to whatever, and they say, well, which one of these is? It's like, oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, this, this giant uh, agency that's been going on for, apparently now that's now a minority. And it's, and it's crazy, because all the money is just, all the money's not green, it's white. But the, definitely, the, it's getting that information out to high school kids, before they've even, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, I want to be at the next Bill Gates, and to say you have to, you have to label yourself in order to take advantage of your, you don't get, your, your privilege isn't just God-given by that piece of paper that was so slanted. You actually have to go and say, this is me, and because I'm this, I can register here. Thank you. Uh, hi. Um, I'm just curious about gentrification, and my wife and I, we've talked about moving into a poor neighborhood, um, but we've been up close and personal with gentrification and seen some pros, like bringing in local businesses into urban neighborhoods, but also seeing some of the consequences of rising housing and having some of the lower class individuals having to leave those neighborhoods. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on gentrification and whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, or a little bit of both. We have a history in this city of, we had a black owned business district on East Market Street. And for urban renewal, it was bulldozed. Similarly, there was a thriving business district, small, much smaller than what was on East Market Street in Warnersville, the first black neighborhood, black community in the city. Urban renewal, that business district's gone. So public policy is fairly critical, and it's not, you know, so when the the zoning board meets, it's not just casual stuff that's going on. It can make a difference in people's lives. And so we've got to pay attention to that. We have a tendency to have um, members of council who have ties in one way or another to the real estate industry. 
developers of one sort. And that tends to skew. And in democracy, we're the ones who keep it on track. So gentrification, restoring communities. Let me give you an alternative to restoring communities. Community housing solutions, a group that does repair work on owner-occupied homes, occasionally buys homes at low rates, and what they're looking for are homes in, say, Glenwood or similar neighborhoods that are in decline. And their goal is to do two things. Rebuild the house, make additions, make improvements, put it back on the market. And in the process, make some money to help the nonprofit keep going. Some. That's not its main function. The other thing is that neighborhood was picked because we want a house that maybe is going to arrest the decline of that neighborhood. The city can participate in that too. Once again, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Larry, and thanks to Bob and Absentia. Our next session will be February 1st. That sounds like a good, good date, doesn't it? Uh, and we will be talking about race and education. And I want to give one last shout out. The Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance, they're the ones who have done the heavy lifting and formulated this program. The Community City Working Group, we've basically given them the opportunity and, and uh, <laughs> but they've done, the, they've done the work and I think it's been outstanding. Thank you very much. Thank you.